Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the 6Ms of Manufacturing Podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Temple. Small manufacturing enterprises make up the lion's share of the industry in most states. Keen decision-making and a willingness to embrace change are only a few of the trademarks of successful small businesses. In this episode, we talk with Danny Hogg Jr. with Hogg Precision in Hartsville, South Carolina to learn more about balancing risk and reward in his job shop. Danny, I just want to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Adrian. Thank you for having me. I really wanted to have Hog Precision and you on this episode because I think people need to kind of understand, you know, a little bit more about what you guys do and some things that you've done over the years that I've seen just in my experience working with you. I think it's really great to share the message of some of the innovations and things that you're doing. But I guess to get started, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of lay the groundwork and and tell the folks that might be listening um, a little bit more about Hog Precision, you know, what the organization does, and then, you know, maybe some of the business segments that you serve. Sure. So we're, we're a, we're a job shop, uh, precision machining, contract manufacturer. We don't, we don't develop our own products. We, we make everything to pre-engineered prints. Um, essentially we're a service provider is what we are. Um, Customer base is pretty diverse. Uh, that's one of the reasons for our success, but we're into a lot of medical appliance, a medical device, everything outside the body, nothing inside the body yet. Um, power transmission and switching uh, is a, a huge uh, customer for us. So think substations, um, cellular municipalities and your, your Duke Energies of the world. Um, safety valves, pop-off valves, flow control valves, so components for those. Um, Control cables, so a lot of the hardware that goes on those cables, whether it be for general commercial use, we also do a lot of uh, A&D, airspace and defense, um, for some of those components, uh, a few different customers in that segment, you know, and then a lot of other stuff in between, um, you know, uh, water meter components, uh, communication antennas, again, for the defense industry. Um, and I'm sure I'm leaving something out, but it's it's pretty broad, uh, the, the different markets that we serve. We've been very fortunate with a very diverse, uh, very, very strong customer base. And how, obviously, Hog Precision, you're Danny Hogg. So how did you get started into the business and kind of grow with it over time? <laughs> well, in all honesty, I didn't have much of a choice, um, <laughs> if, if you want to know the truth. Um, you know, our story actually goes back to the, the mid-70s with, with my dad. So dad grew up on a farm, uh, loved farming. He, you know, dad's 70 years old and he still loved to garden to this day. Um, but he knew he couldn't make a living being a farmer. And uh, he took machine shop in high school, uh, which, you know, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. But I was interested in it, was good at it. Um, after high school, he worked in a few different shops and then decided he was going to go out on his own. And uh, he did in 77, he and a couple other guys partnered up and they started a company doing screw machine products. And that partnership lasted until 1989. One of their biggest customers wanted more of their capacity. They didn't want to give it to them. So that customer bought um, That left one of the owners, uh, he was close to retirement age, so he retired. Then that left my, my dad and uh, Danny Hogg Sr. and the other owner. And dad didn't want to work for somebody else. Um, kind of tough to, to go back the other direction when you've, you've, you've been in business for yourself uh, for 13 years. So they parted ways. 
didn't take long. He started getting calls at home. Um, you know, in the eighties, uh, cell phones hadn't quite become prevalent yet, and at least not where we are. And, um, dad was always kind of the fix it guy. He was a shop floor fix it guy. He started getting calls at home. Hey, you know, since you guys sold out and we're having trouble getting stuff, you know, their, their focus is on, you know, what they make and, um, you know, what we do get, we're having problems. What are you doing? And of course, you know, dad's answer was, well, I'm, I'm not sure yet. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. Cause I just sold 13 years of blood and sweat. So long story short, um, he had enough of his former customers say, Hey, look, if you, you start a shop, we'll give you a chance. And, and they did, and he did. And here we are almost 35 years later. Um, I got started when I was about 12 years old. I remember uh, my uncle has a shop up the road, uh, very successful as well. And uh, as we were we were building our building, dad had bought a couple of machines and and you know, he allowed us to to use some space in his building. So one summer, you know, again, I was 12 years old. I remember getting up every morning uh, with my dad and, and another fella and, and we would ride back and forth 45 minutes. Uh, and I ran a brown and sharp square base, a little, just a little chucking machine. I can't remember what I was making, but it was just some, some little brass parts. So that, that was how I, I spent a summer one year when dad was starting the company. Again, 1989, I was 12 years old. When the original building was built, I remember riding my bicycle around in it. It was a couple of weeks before uh, Hurricane Hugo hit. So that was kind of how we got started. Um, a lot of those customers came on board with him within the first couple of years. Um, a lot of the guys that he used to work with at the old company, many of them came to work with him and, um, a few of them have retired from us already. And, and some of our senior leadership are still those guys that started out with him in the late seventies and early eighties. It's just, you know, it, it makes me think a lot of the smaller shops that I've worked with in the past, you know, those privately held businesses, it always starts with somebody who has a real gift, like a real skill. Right. And then they they start their own business. They go out there. They're not all as successful as hog precision. So I'm kind of interested because it seems like I know whenever we first met, it was probably that was 2014. And every time I would come see you, there'd be something new that you were doing, <laughs> something new that you'd implemented. So there's there's obviously a a passion or an interest in embracing kind of change and, and new things. I mean, um, I remember when you did your tool crib and, you know, some of those types of things. And then you had, you know, some of your newer machines, you were tracking spindles and spindle time. And it just, it seemed like there was this constant evolution, right? And and I feel like that's got to be a secret to some of the success and growth, right? It's just that willingness to embrace it. But I mean, what drives you to to kind of start where you did with the organization and, and bring it to where it is today? I mean, what drives that? you know, sort of risk and reward, right? You know, to, to go after those things and make those kinds of changes. Well, as I said earlier, I, I didn't have, I didn't have much of a choice. It was, uh, <laughs> boy, let's go to work. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's just the way it was. And it, it, it's the way I've been with my kids, but you know, the market dictates a lot of that, Adrian. Um, you know, we, we started out as a screw machine shop and that was great throughout the nineties. We, you know, we were a couple of Brian Sharps and then new Britons and, some very supportive equipment. We had a couple of CNCs, but it was, it was, you know, we, we were a screw machine shop is what we were. And in the mid to late nineties, as everybody knows, unfortunately, we, we had that big old sucking sound called NAFTA that 
that took a lot of the uh, manufacturing base out of this country. At the same time, we had everything moving overseas to Asian low-cost countries, and we certainly were not immune to that. Um, you know, I, I remember straight out of college in the late 90s, it was, you know, you, you came to work one day and you didn't lose a job or an order. You lost the entire account. It was, you made parts for them, and then the next day you didn't, and the account was gone. You know, I, I had one customer in particular, dad had done business with since the early 80s, and you know, they were a big account for us. And they employed about 500 people uh, in the upstate. And about the time they shut us down, they shut that plant down too, because they could get the product overseas, shipped, to put in a warehouse for distribution for less than, you know, we could buy the material for it, basically. You know, and that was that was a common theme. And it's that issue is still there to a degree for certain markets and certain products. Um, so, you know, I say all of that to that, that what drives us, it's survival. You know, survival drives everybody. And, you know, you got to figure out a way to compete when you're in, you know, let's be honest, it's a lot of unfair practices um, when, when you're de dealing with those things. So, yeah, that, that's what's going to drive the the changes we make, the the processes we pursue, the improvements we look for, um, and, and just how we run our business. Uh, it's, it's, it's driven by competition, in all honesty. Do you find, I mean, change is always, it's always difficult, right? Because, you know, you're, you're revamping processes or maybe you're bringing in new equipment. I mean, do you see that there's, um, with the culture that you guys have, and I'm sure you have some folks that are tenured versus some newer folks. I mean, you know, do you see there's just a general culture of embracing that kind of change just over the years as you guys have done different things to adapt to the market? Do you see that people are willing to embrace those new changes and adapt to it? Or is that is that a bit of an uphill battle? I would say for the most part, um, our team has done exceptionally well with embracing new ideas, um, changes for things. I mean, you, know, you don't want to just change for the sake of change. I mean, there has to be, a, a, it has to be thought out. There has to be a reason. There has to be, it's going to make this better, you know, or it's going to allow us to do whatever that, you know, that, that we can't do now. Um, so it, as long as you have kind of a, a clear benefit for why you're going to make that change, what's it going to give you? Excuse me. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the buy-in has been really, really good for us. Uh, we, we went from, you know, the tool career, for instance, you, you mentioned that earlier. So we, we partnered with our, our tool and supplier, and uh, they actually have one of their employees that works on site with us now 40 hours a week. They, they run our tool career. Um, you know, prior to that, each department was kind of responsible for their own tooling, which really meant nobody was responsible for it. And, um, that, that took a, that was probably one of the more challenging things that we had to, to transition into was, you know, because people, they, everybody had their, their stash, everybody hoarded their tools that they liked to use and getting everyone, you know, building confidence that, Hey, th this crib, this virtual kidding this is going to work. You know, it took a little while, you know, to, to get that buy-in shop wide. It's usually the older guys that have trouble embracing that, which I, I think is common in every, in everything really, you know, as we get older, and I, and I, I say we, I'm talking about myself too, 
you know, we like what we like, and it gets harder to to make those changes unless you really see how it's going to help you. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, and I can certainly see that. I mean, it's a, you want to see it proven out, right? You know, show me it's going to work because I'm, you know, and I remember whenever I was in manufacturing, I had a lot of projects and I was in maintenance and our maintenance guys had their own stuff and their own toolboxes and their own extra parts just in case. And they're sort of a, I mean, it's a really, that can be a contentious situation because they're really possessive of those things. They're very protective of it, right? And so it's like to have to jump to something completely different in, in sort of trust a system or technology to manage it. Um, I'm sure that could be a jump for some folks because of just traditionally how we tend to operate. Um, like you said, we we like our stuff. We like the way we do things. So Yes, we do. <laughs> you know, that's... Um, what we were talking about earlier, it's just, I'm kind of curious, like it, beyond the tool crib, was there anything else that you kind of pursued or decided to make change on? And you're kind of like, uh, you know, I know we need to do this. I think this is the right direction. Has there been anything like that? You know, I always kind of go back to that risk and reward. It's like, are you kind of like, this is a calculated risk, but I'm not really well, sure how this is going to go. You know, I, I don't know that. Well, first of all, I'll I'll preface this by you don't realize some of these things until you look backwards. Um, you know, for us, you know, and, and again, I, I give so much credit uh, to my dad. He 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 was and and continues to be so forward thinking. Um, again, in the late nineties, when when that business started going going away, you know, the the, the mid to high volume stuff. Um, you know, when it left, it was like, okay, we got to figure out what we're going to do. You know, are, are we? How are we going to move forward? How are we going to survive? How are we going to deal with, you know, ever shrinking lot sizes, more complex parts, um, making sure that we we can attract and retain the talent needed to do it, and still at the end of the month have a little something left over to reinvest back into the business. You know, that's yeah. that sounds real easy to do, but if you've never done it, it's frigging hard. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it it just it really is. I, I honestly believe everybody should have to run their own lemonade stand one time, and then they will have a much greater appreciation of what small business owners go through. Uh, I really do. Um, but you know, we had to make a change, and we we were we had bef you know before everything started going away, we had bought our first uh, true multitask turning machine. It was a, it was a Morisiki ZL200. It's a, basically, it's a twin turret, twin spindle CNC machine, a turning center with live tooling and a 12 foot bar feeder. And, um, it was, it, it was a great machine. It, it taught us how to run unattended and, you know, unattended nowadays is a, a huge, it, it's a deep thing. You know, it, it's, it's a buzzword. It has been for probably five years. We started in 2000. So we, we've been doing it for 20 years. Um, we bought that first machine. Later on, uh, we realized you know, that, hey, you can run two of these things as easily as you can run one, especially if you're making 500 of this, 1,000 of that, whatever the case may be. Um, so we uh, we did a building expansion, and we purchased, we traded that machine in for something that was a little better suited for, for what we were making. Not that it was bad. It just wasn't really... It had its own issues and wasn't quite right for us. Um, so we, we bought two of them, did a big building expansion, and then a customer uh, lost a huge product line. 
that we had intended on using this for. Yeah, you, know, you often wonder, why do you see brand new machine tools on the used market? That's exactly why. Right. Uh, you, know, yeah. you go out and buy a machine and then the customer evaporates. Um, and, and unfortunately that happens in our business, but you know, luckily it, it, again, it worked out. Um, we, uh, we were, we were, we realized we could do so much more with it, with those machines, uh, especially in the lower batch sizes. So we started out with those two couple of years later, you know, I think by about, oh, this would have been oh four. We had four machines in that area and, and we were running a lot of lights out. And it was it was working for us. It was allowing us to transition. We were picking up some new business. We were getting better at how we you know had done things we had you know, we had done for a decade. Fast forward into around 07, 08, Of course, we all know what happened there. Um, uh, but everything crashed uh, overnight. You, everybody went from busy to more than you could do to um, you know. Am I going to be able to turn the lights on the next day? Uh, I remember at that time we had 70 employees and by the end of the day we had 29 and that included myself, my mom and my dad. Um, again, everybody should have to run their own lemonade one stand, uh, lemonade stand one time because that is an incredibly difficult thing to go through. And, uh, but we got through it, fortunately. Um, 09, 010, things kind of started picking back up. We were all still really gun shy. Because again, our our folks that work with us, you know, again, I mentioned we've got guys that have been with us for thirty years. Uh, they they do become like family to us, and and they're they're more than just an employee employer relationship. You know, I, I do consider so many of the folks to work with us um, m more than that. You know, so to to have to look someone in the eye and say, you know what, I'm sorry, you don't have a job anymore because of something outside of mine and your control. That's an incredibly difficult thing to do. So we, as business started picking back up, you know, I really didn't want to go out and hire a ton of people because I was scared to death to have to go through that again. So we 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 started, okay, well, let's start re-embracing this lights out thing. And, and it kind of happened by accident. Uh, we were bringing on a new product line with a relatively new customer. Um, we were actually going to make the parts on our screw machines because um, it was de decent volume. And we had our tooling on order and our customer was getting their last batch of product from their, their legacy supplier. And something happened, order didn't come through or the order came in and it, it, parts were, were no good. So they called us in a panic. Hey, we need 500 of you know this widget ASAP. What can you do? So we were talking with the customer and we were just like, well, you know, our, our, our tooling hasn't come in, but I mean, we can make the part with just stuff we got off the shelf. So we, we set up one of those twin turrets and we got it all going, you know, to, it was a, a team effort, all of us, you know, just doing whatever we could to take care of that customer. And um, 2.33 o'clock, okay, we, we got it done. We've been through our first piece process. We knew we had a good part. It was time to go home. And I was like, well, guys, the customer needs these parts. Let's just let this thing run tonight. And we all were like, well, are we sure? And I'm like, guys, it's brass. You know, the worst thing's going to happen is the parts won't be any good. And we'll just send the, we'll just recycle the metal with the scrap mill, you know, with scrap uh, at the brass mill. Well, we come in the next morning, lo and behold, and here's 500 pristine parts. And the lights went off. So that began a, about a, probably a, about a year, years long journey of 
dare I say, rediscovering how to run unattended, how to run lights out. Um, you know, sadly, when you go through downtimes, um, maintenance is one of those things that you stretch out because you're, you're trying to conserve every dollar you can. So, uh, you know, with the team, um, we spent six months of just working on stuff. Um, you don't realize just how much intervention you have with an operator when they're here during the day if everything in your process isn't perfect. Um, you know, and it, it was something all the time. You'd fix one issue and then you'd have two or three more that would pop up and and you'd fix those and then you you deal with this. And, and it, you know, it was just a process. And then all of a sudden you look around and you realize, hey, we didn't have to fix anything in a few weeks. Maybe we've got this thing figured out. So, so <laughs> it was, all right, we're going to do brass. We're going to do 12L14. And we might do a little bit of aluminum. Aluminum, it's easy to work with, but chip control was a real problem. But we figured, okay, maybe we can make this work. It didn't take us long to, okay, now we're running 316 stainless steel. We're running 17.4. We're running, you know, relatively difficult materials, lights out. Um, during this same time, we added Swiss uh, capability. We, we replaced about a dozen brown and sharp screw machines with just a couple of Swiss machines. Um, you can run them lights out. We had one particular product line. Again, a part of this is that innovation and trying to remain competitive. Um, a product line we had made for a long time required seven to eight operations, every part. Labor intensive, everything had to be handled. With the uh, with this the new Swiss technology, we knocked it down to three. Um, and it was just, it was amazing. It, it allowed us to be competitive sell the part for a lower price than we had in the past and actually make a little bit more profit on it. Um, but again, it, all of that was embracing those new ideas. So, you know, getting running unattended, taking as much labor out, embracing all that new technology, you know, those those things from about, you know, that journey started in around 2000. And really, I'd say we hit maturity by about 2013, 2014 with being able to embrace that style of manufacturing. And now when a drawing comes in, it's not, you know, how can we run it lights out? It's what do we got to do to make it do it? Even if it's just for a couple of hours, you know, a lot of people get wrapped up in, well, this has to be able to run 24 hours a day for me to justify it. No, it doesn't. You can run a couple of hours a day a week, you know, by the end of the week, you've picked up a day, day and a half by the end of the month. That's another week of free production out of your machine. And, and that's, Kind of the way you got to look at it. Yeah, I've had conversations before with people that were very, very small machine shops, very, very small, like mom and pop. And maybe, you know, they've got a couple of sons in the business and they're running the equipment. And um, I would say, well, you know, we had to have business coming in or they could take on more business. And then the question is, well, we can't really afford to bring on labor right now. And it's like, well, will this machine run lights out? And it was like, it can, mm -hmm. but we're not going to do that. And I, I think it's that, you know, kind of crossing that threshold to take that first step. Like you said, even in your situation is like, okay, we need to get these parts out. I mean, the same thing as your business, you know, do you need to have more business? Do you be, do you need to be able to produce more volume? Is it worth the attempt to to try it to see if you can increase your capacity because you can't add labor costs right now. So, but I've, I've run into situations where 
um, clients have been unwilling to take that chance. And I feel like sometimes, and I'm not saying it's right for everybody, but it does seem like sometimes that's a limiting factor is, is just not looking at that and saying, well, let's just test it, right? Let's just, let's just see where that gets us. Um, but there is a lot of hesitation to do that in some smaller shops, I think. Probably just concerned about what may happen if they only have a couple of machines, right? I mean, you're worried about that's my livelihood. What if something happens? But there's, there is, I have seen some resistance to that in the past. Sure. And and that's natural. I mean, we, you know, I, I, I've had it, you know, we, we've all had it. We've been through parts that, you know, there's no way, there's no way we can run lights out, but with a lot of the more modern, and when I say modern, I don't mean a brand new 2023 machine tool. I'm talking, if you got a machine that's made after 2000, um, just about all of them have some tool life management features and some load monitoring features that you can build into your programs to help ease some of that fear. Um, you know, set, set a torque limiter on and, or, or, I mean, goodness, Adrian, worst case, just set a count. You know, you, you run the part of the job all day long. You know, I can run 50 pieces before I have to make an adjustment. Well, set the counter for 50 and go home. Go spend some time with your family, you know, and then come check it out the next day. Maybe you don't start out with the, the hardest part you're working on or something with a really high material cost. But, you know, start with something that's simple to where if it if it doesn't work out, it don't kill you. You know, we we all have those jobs that that are like that. Well, you know, we're, like I said, the worst case scenario, I'll just I'll send the parts back to the mill. We'll recycle it. You know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, you got to be willing to try something. If you don't, you know, you're just, I, I, I don't know how you make it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of machine shops of all different sizes in the state. I mean, there's a lot of machining, different types and different, like you said, different industry segments they serve and different sizes, but it's a competitive space. I mean, that's in, right. and, and you have to be willing to change or give a little bit, right? Because it's constantly changing with or without you, right? So that's, I think that's sometimes things that we run into with, with some of the smaller, you know, under under 20 employee manufacturers. Sometimes that's a, that seems to be an ongoing challenge to, to some degree is just being able to take that next step beyond. And like you said, even if it's just experimenting with it and, and knowing your limitations and, and sort of de-risking it up front, I think that's probably a good practice just to see if you can do it. Um, that's the easiest way to get some additional capacity and serve your customers without taking on that labor cost, which is usually the the barrier for a lot of the, the smaller folks, for sure, is just taking that on, especially if it's a family business. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess let's change gears a little bit because this is something I know that is is really, you know, something you're passionate about. And I know a lot of manufacturers we talk to, it always comes up. I mean, you know, workforce is, is the topic of the day. Um, but I'm interested, you know, Hartsville is a, you know, it's a small town. Um, and I'm curious, you know, how how are you sort of tackling that whole concept of, you know, recruiting new employees and getting them engaged in, you know, working in manufacturing, working at Hog Precision? I mean, kind of how are you approaching that, you know, recruitment and retention effort in your area? Sure. So, you know, that's not a new problem. Uh, that's a problem that has always existed. Um, you know, again, I, I, I use what my experience from my dad, I mean, even back in the seventies, finding good help was really difficult. Um, our business is unique in that in the precision machining world, the kind of tolerances we deal with, it's, you know, 
not just any machinist can do what we do. We, I, I remember about four or five years ago, we had a, 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 a guy that came to work with us and, and then he's still with us, a fantastic fellow. And um, we had hired him. And then a few weeks later, a friend of his came, came to interview as well. And, and I overheard him tell his buddy during the tour, you know, they drill holes here better than we bore them. You know, that was just, the, I, so I guess the skill level and the level of precision that we do here is, is different. But as far as attracting and retaining talent, you know, that's always a struggle. It is a struggle here. We're a smaller um, company and we compete against Fortune 500, Fortune 500 companies for labor all the time. And, you know, we're, we're never going to be able to match them in everything that they do, but, but we, we work with them. Um, and, and by that, I mean, you know, we're, we're trying to partner together, work with our education system, work with our technical college system, and even our, our local four-year college to, to build this pipeline of employees that we need for the 21st century. Um, you know, I've served on advisory committees to the, our local technical college for 15 plus years. Um, I, you know, it's sad that we don't have any more participation than we do, uh, at least in, for our field. Um, it's better than it was in the past, but it, it could be better because when I go to those meetings, there are other companies that I know of that are not represented there. And that's, that's discouraging. We also have the local career center uh, for the uh, public high school. Um, very involved with that, working with them as well in advisory capacity. Um, and we, we, they need some cutting tools or they need some, you know, a few bar ends of material to make projects for students. You know, we, we, we do those kind of things. So it, it starts there, partnering with, with those institutions, working closely with them. Uh, offering jobs while the students are in school, whether it be high school or the collegiate level. That's how we've built our workforce, especially for the last 15 years. I would say 80% of our staff went through that program. Um, if, if they're in the Darlington or Florence County area, they would have gone through a, a DCIT, which is the high school or a Florence Darlington Technical College uh, program for a machine tool. That's that's usually what we're looking for. Um, it takes time. You know, you, you've always got maybe one or two you don't necessarily need from a, I guess, a, a budgetary standpoint. But if you're not investing in those people, you're you're going to be in the situation you're in now. And and not all of them stay. You know, you you wish all of them could stay. But I think you had a. a one of your previous shows, you talked about the the lifers. You know, the lifers don't exist anymore. It's um three to seven years, and and that's it. You know, and that's that's hard to accept. Sometimes that's hard not to take personally, but but I get it. It's just the way the world works. Um, so our job is to be as as engaging as we can to provide as much rewarding, meaningful work as we can, and, and career advancement as we possibly can. And um, hopefully get some some good work out of folks. But that's that's kind of that's how we're doing it. Again, the automation helps us a lot. Um, you know, we've talked about lights out. Uh, about five years ago, we brought in our first robot uh, for doing machine tending, and and now we've got a couple, and we're looking to add some more because I don't want these skilled machinists loading parts all day. That's boring. Nobody wants to do that. When I was on the floor, I hated it for the <laughs> most part. Um, 
the longer the cycle time, the better, because then you could walk away and go do something else. But just for, you know, my brain's running a million miles an hour all the time. And that was just the worst thing in the world was to stand there and load apart day in and day out. You know, that's what you do. That's part of the work. But the the, the cobots are, are great for that kind of stuff. It's more engaging for the machinists because not only do they know the machining side, but then they get to work with the cobots. They're setting those up. They're programming them. And really, their job is making sure it's making quality parts, getting jobs tooled up ahead of time, and then helping out You know, if we need another machine to set up. So it, it helps them. <laughs> a new program that, that we're working with, so I, I sit on our, our local um, economic development board for the county, and I'm on an education committee, and a, a team of businesses in the area, we've, we've partnered with our, our public school system, and we're bringing eighth graders through for tours. So we have 15 eighth graders come through once a month. Um, in fact, we've got our, our last tour of the, the semester next week. And we just show them what manufacturing is. Um, you know, we, we talk to them about, you know, here's, here's the things you need to learn. Here's why you learn the English. Here's why you learn the math. Here's, here's why you need to be able to do geometry. You know, I remember as a kid in school, and most people do. I'm never going to need this. When am I ever? <laughs> when am I ever? Gonna, when am I ever going to need to know how to solve a right triangle? Well, guess what? Do you want to be in machining every day? I mean, that, you're you're dealing with right triangles and parallel lines and all this stuff all day, every day long. So that's when that's how you're going to need it. Um, but we, we bring the kids through, and and we have some hands-on stuff for them that they they get to make a little. Uh, our product is a keychain, so we let them make a little keychain. And um, they get the, you know, we make a bunch of them ahead of time because it takes about six or seven minutes to do one. But th they get to load one and they get to see it being made. And our, our team answers all kind of questions they might have about the process. And we take them into the quality lab and show them how it's measured. Um, we go back to the, the tool crib and our laser etching area and you know, our, our etching machine. We've got enclosures built around it so you can watch it while it etches. But we let them personalize it. They put their name on it, their jersey number for the, the sports, uh, social media names, which I, it can be quite comical. <laughs> uh, but you know, it, it just it let when they leave here, they've been exposed to a little bit of everything. They've had some hands on. They see that it's it's relatively it, it it's clean, it's fun, it's cool. You know, there's a lot of technology involved in what we're doing. And and most of the kids, the, some of the, the surveys that the uh, school system's done for us, you know, they it changed their mind about manufacturing or it said, hey, maybe I want to consider it as a potential career path or I, we didn't even know you guys existed. Now, we've been here almost 35 years. Um, so just, you know, those kind of things. It really is. If we wait for the education system. You know, and I'm not knocking them at all because God bless them. They've got enough that they have to deal with. But if we as manufacturers just wait on them to solve the problem, it's it's never going to get fixed. You've got to be engaged. You've got to work with them. You you've got to you got to put in the work. And um, that, that's kind of that's what I found. That's what we're doing. It, it's worked. Um, it's about the best thing I know to do. In all honesty, is just just partner with these different groups. Um, because if we're just trading employees, it's not helping anybody. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great that you're bringing, I mean, the, the, 
middle schoolers, you know, that's the right time. A lot of people are trying to get in front of kind of their career planning anyway. But like you said, it's, I've said it many times before, and it's, you know, it's just one of those things that I feel very strongly about is nobody knows what goes on inside your four walls. There's no way they can even imagine if they've never worked in that industry before. So, you know, to your point, you know, you're kind of overcoming the myths of, of manufacturing. Oh, it's, you know, dark and, you know, dirty, dangerous type of work. And then they come in and they see a, a clean facility and technology and you're able to create things. I mean, it's it, it's really kind of breaking down some of those barriers. But if you don't do it right, if you if you don't share your story, if you don't let people in your doors and demonstrate what you really are doing, it kind of leaves things open to a to an inaccurate narrative about manufacturing, manufacturing opportunities, right? And that's always, I think, just a real, that's a really unfortunate thing if if folks are not opening their doors because I think there's so many missed opportunities. So I think it's awesome. You're bringing in eighth graders and that's when they start kind of formulating those decisions about what they might want to do um, before they ever get into high school. So it's, it's the right time for sure. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's, you know, it's, it, <sighs> It can it, right now it's it can be a tough sell because for 40 years we've all been told, you know, you graduate high school, you go to Clemson University. That's what I did, you know, and, and I'm a Clemson guy, as, as you as you know, um, but like that was your only choice. You know, you're going to go to school, you're going to graduate, you're going to go to college. And that, you know, we've told young people that is the path to success. And as as we have learned really over the last 10 to 15 years, you know, those things are still incredibly important. Don't get me wrong. And I, and I tell these kids that if you need specialized training, you know, you want to be a teacher, you want to be a, a doctor, you want to be an attorney, you know, if you want to be an engineer, you absolutely go, go to those four-year colleges. But if you're not sure, learn a skill, learn a trade, whether it's machine tool, whether it's welding, whether it's maintenance, whether it's HVAC, whether it's plumbing, you know, I hate to say it, but, um, you know, um, the machine tool side, it, as I have learned, it can be outsourced, but I've never outsourced a plumber or an air conditioner because when those two, when those two things break, you don't need somebody here in six weeks. You need somebody here right now. And, 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 and it, it can be a wonderful career. So there's, there's so many options out there. You know, I'll, I'll tell the kids, if you don't know, you know, don't don't go rack up forty or fifty thousand dollars in student debt. Go learn a trade that might be related to what you think you want to do. I mean, right now you can practically go to school for free. I mean, for our our employees that are in school, if they have any education costs that aren't, you know, they're not getting paid for, whether it be lottery, tuition assistance, Pell Grant, whatever the case may be, as long as they hit certain criteria, we pay for the rest. So. I mean, I don't know how you get a better deal than that. And then you say, okay, well, I've got this trade. I've got this skill. I've got a couple of years of experience. Now, okay, I want to go get more training and, and get that, that four-year degree. And hopefully that, that your employer can pay for it. In my opinion, that's probably the smartest way to do it when you're unsure of, you know, what do I want to do, you know? Yeah. That's my opinion. No, absolutely. Like you said, I mean, go after something, see, you know, get a skill. And then we, we tell a lot of folks, you know, 
you can always go back and go to school, but have a much clearer picture of what it is you want to do with your life. And then that's time, you know, time and money well invested. Right. So yep. sometimes we don't have it figured out whenever we graduate high school. I don't, I don't think a lot of people do, but um, like you said, you, once you have a skill, you know, my dad always has a statement of like, you know, you know, nobody can take that away from you. Once you know yeah. how to do something, nobody can take that away from you. So you now have something in your toolbox to carry with you wherever you go. Um, but then obviously maybe you start formulating a plan of, oh, I think I know what I want to go to school for. And like you said, maybe if you stay with an organization, they help you to fund it or at least have some kind of offset for it. So, I mean, it's, it makes a lot of sense and it, it helps people to to kind of figure out what they want to do with their lives. Not everybody wants to go to college. That's okay. Um, not everybody needs to. Um, so yeah. I think that's a, that's an ongoing, um, conversation that happens a lot is, is just kind of helping people navigate that. But I think the more that industry takes active part in, you know, sort of setting the stage for what's possible. Like you said, that's a missing piece of the conversation sometimes is what can industry do? What's available to people who don't want to necessarily start with college. That's sometimes missing in the conversation. And so there's a lot of assumptions made and, and sometimes we miss out on some really great opportunities to hire some folks because they don't think they can work in manufacturing or they don't think they would like it. Um, I think that'll be a, It'll be a battle for us for, for quite some time, I think, to kind of overcome as many years that we've been going down one path. And now we got to, like you said, we got to overcome what we've been saying for years. But um, I'm glad that people like you and, and folks in manufacturing that understand it are taking an active role in their communities, because I do think that's going to make the difference in those areas for sure. Um, well, you know. Danny, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I just want to thank you so much for being here. I've It's been great to catch up with you because I haven't seen you in a while. So it's so nice to finally catch up with you. And I think you've you've really shared a lot that other people can learn from. And, and really, that's what this is all about. So thank you so much. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity and, and have enjoyed it. When, when you're in our area again, feel free to stop by. I'll take you up on that. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. Thanks for listening to this episode of the six M's of manufacturing podcast. Special thanks to Danny Hogg Jr. for sharing the story of his family business and the lessons he's learned along the way. Visit the episode notes for details and reference links to information shared during today's discussion. Did you enjoy this episode? That's awesome. Be sure to follow our podcast and share with your network. And remember, don't just make it, make it better.